You know, this next episode is all about music with my friend Spencer Barnez, of course, with Spencer the Gardener Band. Spencer's just been a great friend of mine since the early 1970s when he first brought me onto a volleyball court and asked me to be on his team. That really changed so much of how I looked at life, and Spencer's that kind of guy to make change in people's life just through his smile and his vibration. Today's episode is going to be all about Spencer and his journey, starting bands at an early age and getting into the vibration of great music leaders and having opportunities to take his band internationally. Spencer will talk about how rad it is for him to be one of the greatest party bands in California. But that said, his new documentary film's out, and it's titled, It's More Than Just a Party Band. And Spencer Barnett's journey has been so cool, so amazing, and the lives that he's touched, and the people that he's inspired, and all these beautiful things put together, it's just amazing. But I wanted to let you folks know, is that before the episode starts, Spencer needs a kidney. We want to know if you can help. For more information about how you can help, email Liz Barnez. That's Spencer's sister at LizBarnetz at gmail.com. L-I-Z-B-A-R-N-I-T-Z at gmail.com. Let's see if we can share that love with Spencer. In the meantime, I want you all to enjoy this show because it's all about love. Spencer, we're right here at the edge of the coast. Are we not at the edge of the continent, or what? We are at the edge of California and the Pacific Ocean. It's just dazzling right now with this beautiful sunset. You know, I always like to say where we're at, and you know, paying back to the homage to the Chumash, how they all lived here, and such a rich lifestyle. You had a story of Chumash? Well, I'll tell you the truth. I think that they did have a rich lifestyle because they didn't face overpopulation. They just had like, you guys want to go to the beach and barbecue? Lobsters, scallops, everything. Salmon. And then we'll just stay there tonight. We'll just build a big fire and, you know, it'll be cool. That's so cool. I mean, it's hard to say exactly what happened, but, you know. They're uh, just like we're living, this beautiful weather, beautiful climate, the environment. It is changing. We talked earlier about the kelp out at Solomar Point, Solomar Reef. Things come and go and change, but should be interesting like we talked about what those south swells are going to be like yeah, next, summer. Like next summer yeah maybe but you know that just made me think the Chumash thing is like you know I, I wasn't around but like the early 60s surfers surfing even places like Malibu were still getting abalone off the rocks uh, maybe not maybe not Malibu but in Santa Barbara for sure up until like Absolutely. The 80s, yes. and, and my mom used to make abalone when I was a kid. It was so good. Yeah, and you'd and see them on the rock. How did, you, how did your mom prepare it? With she'd pound it out first, and then breadcrumbs over it and lime. Oh. It was good, really good. That's neat. So you grew up in Santa Barbara. What what uh, high school did you go to? Santa Barbara High School, Monroe Elementary, Lacumbra Junior High School. All kind of. Uh, I mean, I grew up on the Mesa. So I lived most of my life, my early years, till my senior year in high school, and then I moved downtown. Neato, neato. And so growing up, your parents, were they outdoor enthusiasts? Were they musicians? How, how did you find your way to the outdoors and music? You know, it's funny because the world has changed a lot. And now, I mean, you can see it just in the whole uh, 
nightclub way of things. It's like everybody goes out. There is now, you know, even Tony's is a good example. It's like it's seven to ten. It's like early, and it's like it caters to forty and over. And you know, when I was a kid, your parents stayed home, and they never did that kind of thing. So that part of the world has changed a lot. My nobody. I mean, it was kind of like I grew up next to the pit, so that's how I started surfing. Almost everything that I have done, I was not influenced by anything in my house. It was just either environment or people around me. Um, and my parents were not musical, per se. My dad was kind of artsy. Um, he died in the 70s, though. But we just basically had, you know, kind of a very California upbringing, especially after he died, because my mom was from California, so she liked going to the beach. And somehow or another, that led me to surfing. Funny, too, because after I started surfing, she actually managed NACRA catamarans for the, at the end of the 70s. Out of the Santa Barbara Harbor? Yeah. Neato. Do you know who Bruce Wood is? I don't. Bruce Wood is the first person that taught me how to play guitar. He's a flamenco guy who was a 60s surfer from Redondo, but also a boating catamaran guy. He worked at, at NACRA Catamaran. And he plays flamenco, and he had gone to Spain, as many of those guys did, to play guitar and, you know, go to bullfights and surf in Europe. Wow. Anyways, he started trading my mom. He'd bring fish over, she'd make it, and he'd give me a guitar lesson. So that was kind of how I started. Nita, what was your influence of music back then? Was it general? Pretty general. When I was in high school, I loved Thin Lizzy. But I didn't ever have any set style that I liked because I was a huge Bowie fan from young age. And I don't even know why. I mean, it was just, he's just so talented. But at the same time, I also was listening to Archie Bell and the Drells, like the single Tighten Up. And I loved, my first record was Diana Ross and the Supremes. No idea how that happened. My dad listened to classical. It was just kids at school and friends around that led us in different directions. Just kind of like when I started surfing, at age 14, 15, all the surfers from the pit watched Monty Python. So that was a big influence on us. Right. You're learning to play music. What drove you to start a band, and what was that first band's name? The first band's name was All Night Longo, and it was, again, a bunch of kids on the Mesa. And it was like we all sort of played raggedy, and, said, and somebody said, let's start a band. Oh, yeah, there's Craig, the drummer. Oh, he plays guitar, he plays guitar, he plays guitar. So we had a bunch of people, and we switched like somebody would play and somebody would sing. Okay. And we played at the Ice Patch, which used to be on the Mesa. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, but from there, Brad, a friend, my friend who was in Europe at the time, came back and said, hey, there's this whole new wave thing going on. We, we need to start a band. He didn't play guitar or anything. So I said, okay, well, why don't we go to Mexico? I'll teach you how to play guitar. And so we went to Mexico for three months I taught him how to play guitar and we came back and three months after we'd been back, we played a gig as the tan 
July 3rd, 1979 at Georgia's. Oh my gosh. Now you're talking about Brad Knack that yeah. you went to Mexico with. And yeah. you come back and you start a band, The Tan. Tell me about that. Well, The Tan ended up lasting a long time. I mean, we lived in Europe. We had a record deal or two. Things happened pretty fast, considering that we were so bad when we started. We also got another guy named Dave Humes who joined the band, who was a, a good songwriter. And so the three of us were writing songs. And we had kind of a, a California thing going on that we were really popular with high schools and we were playing up and down the coast at high schools. But, you know, before that, we logged a couple of years being like a punkish California band that wasn't all that great. But we stuck to it and, uh, and got, we got pretty good. Where did you come up with the direction? You said, talked about New Wave and the, the sounds were changing, but the tan was different. Well, you know, that's because we were from California. We were a new wave band, but we were also, you know, a lot of songs that I've written, not so much then as now, I'll go, oh, I really like that song. And then I will make a point of trying to uh, somehow make it mine. <laughs> that's a nice way of saying steal it. But um, so, and you could hardly ever tell. Right, because I, I mess it up somehow. It just doesn't, it, it, I'm just not adept at perfectly stealing it. So, you know, that, I mean, that happens in the tan when you're young and you're, you know, you like all these different things. U2's album came out, Elvis Costello, The Clash, all that kind of stuff. Dave was really into the Beatles, so he brought that sensibility towards okay, us. Nice. And, uh, and, you know, we were sort of like, you know, I mean, you know this because because of because you, you're the same time period. But being a surfer was uh, being um, on counterculture. Right. I mean, people. Oh, you're a surfer. Yeah, exactly. So New Wave was counterculture. Oh, yeah. Ne none of them were very like rebelliously counterculture, especially not here. But they had that, so you got, you felt, I don't think you have that definition anymore where people feel like they're part of this group or that group and they're sort of different because of it. I think now people will be part of this group or that group or that group, but they're all kind of the same. You know, right when an Olympic swimmer got a tattoo, that was over. <laughs> you know, there was, know, there was no need for... You know, to express yourself with a tattoo. Yeah. Like I got, you know, and then all of a sudden it's just like, you know, everyone, everyone has, just like mine, I have a tattoo in Sanskrit. It's uh, only means something to me, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> Rolling back a bit to the uh, tan, you talked about a record deal. Who was it with and who would produce you? Well, we had a couple of different deals. The first single we did, this is just a stroke of luck was uh, produced by Robbie Krieger from The Doors. And he was uh, a friend of a guy who wanted to manage us, who lived in Santa Barbara, who was a photographer. So he brought Robbie in, and Robbie's like, yeah, I would like to do this. I haven't done this yet. Oh, nice. um, so it was a, a, like a new project for him. And he, played a, he plays a solo on the song 360, oh, nice. which is on our first record. And it's really funny because he's, he's 
super talented guy, obviously, and he's quiet. And and uh, he said, he told me one time, he's like, you know, Spencer, I, I was never a good guitar player until after the Doors finished. And then I got into playing guitar. But so he's kind of like talking, going, yeah, I'll play a solo. And so he goes in and he said, like the, gets to the part where his solo comes on and he just, he just tears it up. And we're laughing, we're like, oh my God. Because we're also, you know, in New Wave, you're like, those guitar solos were not really part of the whole thing. Yeah, so we're also know. thinking, is this cool or not? Know, you know, because we're like 20, like, it was, it was very, new. it was super cool. And, uh, you know, I, I, there was another, Robbie had just, he was starting to get interested in surfing. And so we was, went down and surfed Rincon one day. And uh, I, I, there was a set coming and we were all out in the water. And I remember looking behind me thinking, oh shoot, he's 20 yards further in. The set is going to break on him. He's going to get run over oh, no. by some guy singing come on baby light my fire <laughs> which he wrote <laughs> for real and you know especially like early 80s rink on there's probably 10 guys out there singing that song I know for sure but anyways we did that with him and uh, and that was the first thing we did and I don't really remember everything that went it didn't so much go wrong it just we just continued we didn't end up with that manager and so we moved along to our next little thing, which was produced by Robbie Robertson from the band. Wow. So Did you get to meet him? And Yeah. He's well. a funny guy. I mean, he was very Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Um, he was friends with our lawyer, okay. also very Hollywood. Okay. He had a different lifestyle from uh, the pit. Well, the girl, uh, <laughs> one of our friends said, you know, he's the kind of guy, he's talking about our attorney, He's so disgusting. I'd like to just go to Vegas with him for the weekend. <laughs> I mean, and that was a pretty good description. I mean, he was just like this Hollywood, slimy Hollywood oh, dude. Man. Oh, man. And uh, so Robbie was well entrenched in Hollywood. We did, when we were doing his records, we went over to the house, his house, and he had two 15 and 16 year old daughters. And he's like, you guys stay away from them. <laughs> Which was funny, too, because as it turns out, I was playing in San Francisco um, at Slim's, and we were doing a sound check. This is in Spencer the Gardener. Okay. So we play a song that was in the tan called Train of Thought. So we were doing a sound check, and we were doing that song. And this girl comes running out. She goes, Spencer, were you in the tan? And I said, yeah. She's like, I'm Alexa, I'm Robbie's daughter. No way. He used to play this song all the time. Oh, that's so cool. So it was hilarious because so cool. that was Full the girl circle. I was supposed to stay away from. Right. And now, she, now she's booking Slims. I've talked to her on the phone like 10 times. Oh, that's neato, Spencer. That was pretty funny. That's neat. So you, you mentioned Spencer the Gardener. So we come out of the tan. Things are changing. It's evolving. Did you want to break up with the band and go start well, something else? here's what happened. We were all living in London. We went from, after the Robbie Robinson record that we did for EMI, the record never came out. It was, a, it happened a lot in the 80s. The, uh, there was a lot of political movement between people that worked at record companies. 
So a lot of bands would just get left behind. There was a lot of money too, so it was like it was all just a tax write-off, and uh, and so we got left behind our the label that had signed us. So then we were in London. We had fun, but we were we have always been really good friends, and we still are. At a certain point, we were kind of like just. It was easier for us to go to the pub than uh, rehearse. You know, we were just we'd been friends for a long time, and it was it just the light seemed kind of we all were changing a little bit. When I came back home, I got a job landscaping, and I was playing a lot of basketball too. I heard you were in Montecito landscaping. I was I was working for what was called Turk Heslin Landscape. Okay. And uh, one day I got hurt playing basketball, and I couldn't work anymore. And I had kind of just not really been concentrating on music at all. But I just got tired of watching TV, grabbed my four track, and I wrote the first 12 Spencer the Gardener songs really fast. It happened very organically. It was just, I'd been kind of putting this thing together in my head of what I wanted. Uh, I wanted horns, I wanted surf, I wanted Latin. I wanted all the stuff that, you know, that it, that came with it. And so since I'd been, I hadn't really been doing anything, but it had been like sort of, it's like put it in the oven and let it bake. So it had been baking and the songs just came out real quickly. Um, and so we, you know, I, I used the money that I made landscaping to record it. Got friends of mine that were, you know, that I'd been playing with off and on over the course of time and uh, and we recorded it and everybody that was in the band said hey this is fun we should play live I wasn't expecting that I called it Spencer the Gardener because I just thought I was going to give it away as Christmas presents <laughs> yeah. but so the band I mean they talked me into let's play f- some shows we did and it got popular really fast um, and you know I would have to also say that Ventura and San Francisco are are also big reasons why it made it through and continues on. Like Charlie's, I mean, we played there a lot, nice, but I and it was you know we were popular. It was like since then, I've kind of never been shown the door. It's like it's always been this moderate level of popularity that you know you you can you can make a living in music in different ways. You don't always have to just make it big. It's as if I'm a teacher, you know. It's like I, I, maybe not at a good school, but <laughs> talking about teachers and doing things different. Tell us about organic gangster. Well, that was another thing that happens when you're doing something like this. You just fall into these lucky little uh, avenues, and I wrote a song and I know it's I don't know when this comes out but since it's close to Thanksgiving I wrote a song called The Gobble Song and we recorded it filmed it made a video and it went viral Um, and this is in like 2007 which viral was different it was like it was really exciting and and you didn't know it hadn't really happened a lot so it was just kind of like Probably everybody anywhere in the world who was related to Santa Barbara saw that video and passed it to their friends. But anyway, so I had that, 
and then a, a girl that I was seeing was uh, needed a video, needed a song for um, a video they were doing for she sold worms. So I wrote a song called The Worm Girl. And then I wrote another one quickly after that, and I was like, wow, this is weird. I have the makings of like a kid record. Wow, very cool. And then I just kind of thought, okay, well, I'm going to do it. So I didn't look into it, and I didn't realize that everyone on earth has a kid's record. But uh, I would have stopped right away. like this one. I would have stopped right away. But anyway, so I, uh, I, I did that, and I... I wrote some more songs and put it out. And when I put it out, like, at first it was like, I was like, okay, I'll go for the, you know, the, the organic farming group. And that was wrong because that's just a bunch of serious people. <laughs> and I realized that this is going to go for kids. I started playing in schools. And then I was lucky enough to get a grant from the county ball for it. So it's like, it's if not you, luck. That's being well, awesome, cool. it, it's, it it is a little bit of luck. It's it's, it's both. It's, it's doing something that you are doing and, not stopping, mm-hmm. and the ball rolls and mm-hmm. things roll with it. You know, we have this movie now. Things are rolling with that, mm-hmm. which I wanted to do this movie because, I don't have to go tour there. That movie can go there how cool it is to grow up in the 60s, 70s. When I think about our time in the 70s, I always think about like 8 millimeter, millimeter uh, <laughs> CPO film. You know, our whole life is in CPO. You know, and uh, you have the tan, successful, living in London, coming back, becoming a professional gardener, but never losing music and then starting. And as you say now, your documentary film, we're more than just a party band. How did that come about that you have a documentary film? And what is the takeaway of the film? Well, I'll tell you, it came about because Emil Millar, who produced our newest record, approached me about doing, he's like, why don't we do an album and a show at the Libero? I said, you know, I, I can do that by myself. What, what else can we do? He's like, let's do a movie. And I was like, that I would do. If, I, if we could do that, I will do that. And so Robert Redfield, who produced the movie, or who directed the movie, got involved. And uh, and as it went, it just kind of, another thing that sort of kept going organically, and not to take away from him, because he did a, Robert Redfield did an amazing job on it. But um, it, it just sort of flowed a little bit through the whole thing. Because I told him one of the, the things that I wanted to... Uh, to point out to the world is the definition of success. Like, what is success? Because in music and in acting and all those kinds of things, for most people, you're either you're either big or not. But there's so much in between. So, you know, nobody ever asks a teacher, oh, you must be bummed you're not teaching at Harvard, or a journalist at The Independent or The Ventura Reporter. Wow, are you bummed that you're not working at the Rolling Stone? Which doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but, you know, nobody ever says that. But to people in bands, they're kind of like, ah, oh, trying to make it, huh? It's like, there's ways. It's just like that kid record. There's all kinds of ways to be successful at what you're doing. And so that's kind of what I have tried to carry on into this film, is that 
your own definition of success can sort of uh, frame what you do and then however you react to it. So, I mean, like, I feel like I've been pretty successful. Um, maybe not so in a monetary hits way, but I've, you know, I've, I've lived in Mexico, I've lived in London, I've just had a good time, um, and here I am back at the new Charlie's in Ventura called Tony's. Well, that's fantastic. And if you could leave something with our listeners, like something to, to share. I mean, it's so profound what you've already put through. But at this sunset in your life, this journey, what could you leave our listeners? Well, I'll tell you. Tasty taste. You told me a story about me. <laughs> that's right. And I really like that story because it really does fit me. Um I can just jump in real quick Go ahead. because it is so important to me too because it's going to make me cry <laughs> because it was 1974-ish and I went down to the YMCA on Hitchcock Way and I thought about this Spencer I thought volleyball but no you were a baller and you played basketball I played both Okay. Because I played volleyball in high school. Okay, I think it was volleyball. I'm a totally shy kid. I'm probably about 10 years old. You're about 12 or 13, 14. Super cool kid. You're all tan and your hair's bitching and you're playing and you're just glowing. And I see everyone on the court and I just like, how am I ever going to fit in here? And you turned and looked and you saw that I was on the sideline. And I wasn't the only one, but you saw me. You looked right at me and you go, hey, you, I want you on my team. That changed my life, Spencer. That's why I'm going to cry, because I do that to people now. Well, you gave me that chance. I mean, that that is something I've always... I've always kind of done that. I've just always... I'm always rooting for the underdog. And I don't know if it's just part of my, my DNA or my chemical makeup or whatever, but, it, you know, when I heard that, it made me happy, because, no, I don't remember it. Yeah, but I've been no. doing it forever. I know, right? You know, the, I think my favorite basketball story was I used to play all kinds of pickup games. So one day I went to Center High and it was after work and two girls were there and like they had next game. Nobody wanted to play with them. So I was like, well, I'll play with you. And then there was another friend of mine there and I said, do you want to run with us? And we just took over. <laughs> and the girls were so happy because they won three games. And all the guys that were sitting on the side of the court were just like, what the fuck are those guys? <laughs> so, I mean, I've always enjoyed that. That's why it's fun for me to hear that story. But you do it with your music, too, and you're inclusive for everybody. When you play... I am, you, and I... Sh I everybody is on my team right now. The new record is called Shine On, and I usually shine a light on each person that's playing, and it's probably a bigger light than they might get on their own. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do that. And, uh, but, you know, that's, that's part of my personality, but it's also part of the reason why I'm able to keep a band together because I can sort of spread the wealth a little bit. Don't make me out to be too altruistic because it all comes back to me, too. <laughs> <laughs>